Good morning. I am Mike Overstreet, a pastor here at Element 3 Church, and today we're going to continue on. That was really abrupt. Can we all acknowledge that? <laughs> Love you, Judah. Um, today we're going to continue on in our series, Faith That Works, where we are journeying through the book of James, uh, this profound in-your-face letter from the New Testament that's really about one thing. That is the relationship between faith and works or our beliefs about Jesus and our actions in the world. But before we get into our next section of the letter, let's do an icebreaker. What was your favorite subject in high school? Shout it out. Too many. Drama. Science. What was the one over here? Did I hear Spanish? My man. English? I barely speak English. I don't think that's going to fly for me. Band. I liked band. Also barely played well in band, too. I had two. My first love, still my greatest love, was history. I just adored uh, understanding why things happened, trying to interpret events as part of this ongoing story of human history. I ate it up. And like I said, I still do. But I also love science, especially chemistry, which I must confess is odd because I was terrible at chemistry. It was one of the only classes I actually almost failed. But I still loved it, and that was for two primary reasons. The first reason that I loved chemistry was the same reason that I was bad at it, actually. See, I was a student who liked to cut corners. Anyone else in this room do that? And I was smart enough to get away with it in almost every area. But not chemistry, because in chemistry, everything's a matter of reactions. It's defined by laws and equations that are repeatable and reliable so long as you have the right ingredients, amounts, and combination, which I love because it's trustworthy, it's sure. But at the same time, that also meant that if you cut corners or if you rush something or, for example, you missed a chemical in the reaction, well, everything kind of goes sideways, does it not? AKI messed up a lot of experiments, y'all. It was ugly. Which leads to the second reason I love chemistry. And that is my teacher, Mr. Fannin, was dope. I mean, this guy was awesome. He understood that true learning requires that a teacher both show and tell. In other words, he didn't just tell us what to know. He put knowledge into action in front of us and guided us to replicate it. We applied chemicals that made gummy bears burst into flames and literally scream and almost fly around the room. Harry Potter kind of stuff. We had beakers that he guided us in overflowing with these rainbow foams. We did it all. And every time he showed us, told us, and pushed us to act on it, to replicate it ourselves, to show him that we had learned what he wanted us to learn. And each time I messed up, leaving out an ingredient, rushing my measurements, making a mess of his classroom, he didn't get angry. He understood that science is trial and error. Instead, he pointed me back to the equation. What we know works. And then he pushed me to try it again. And the interesting thing is that with enough successes, with enough evidence that, by golly, if you actually do what you're told in this subject, it will work, I actually learned to trust the science. I stopped cutting corners. I followed the equations as prescribed, and I learned some pretty amazing stuff along the way. And this is much in common with faith. 
On one hand, faith is not chemistry. I have a strongly held belief that the core of spirituality is embracing mystery, the unknowable, the infinite, the transcendent. And yet, at the same time, faith can be very similar. Sometimes, in spirituality, there are just things that with the right ingredients, combination, and action will work. They will produce a promised reaction and effect in our lives and world. Certain parts of faith really are that simple. And in these areas, when we're not experiencing the promise effect, the science is usually not the problem. The equation is not busted. The problem, more often than not, is that we are missing a key ingredient, we're trying to cut corners, or we're simply not trusting the teacher who told us what to do. And that's where we're going today. Because we're going to be looking at this one critical part of the faith equation that James believes that we try to cut corners on the most. We pick up in verse 14 of chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, it's important to note that James is not providing specific theological analysis on how the relationship between believing in Jesus and our deeds works. That's often how this is misread. What he's trying to point out is actually pretty simple. He's simply trying to say that there is a relationship between our good deeds, our actions to love our neighbor as ourselves, and our beliefs. That works or deeds are necessary for faith to do fully what it was originally intended to do. He asks, what good is it to have faith but not deeds? And the language is important. See, now good in Greek, a phalos, is the intended benefit of something. So someone professes belief in Jesus but lacks loving actions. Well, James says to that person, that they're going to miss out on the intended benefit, the designed effect of faith in Jesus, which is related to James's second question. Can such faith save? Save, so dezo in Greek, can mean salvation, make whole, or heal. Now let's sit with that because this is where we start to get a little uncomfortable. Many American Christians hear the word saved and a story pops into our heads immediately. A story about a place called heaven and a place called earth. It goes a little like this. Heaven is the perfect spiritual place where God lives, while earth is the corrupt, evil, separate physical place where we live. And being saved is believing that Jesus was real so that we can escape earth and go to heaven when we die. Has anyone found themselves holding that story? That is the intended purpose of faith. And I've got a ton to say about this. I've talked about this a lot. And y'all, if you're rolling your eyes because you're sick of hearing Mike talk about the overlap of heaven and earth, too bad. Because this is super important. That's not the whole biblical story. Nor how James, a Jewish Christian, understood a word like salvation. 
You see, biblically, heaven and earth are spaces distinguished by the wills realized within each one. In other words, heaven is where God's will alone is realized. And earth is where competing wills exist, especially competing human wills. Does anyone ever see competing human wills in our world? Conflict, strife, chaos, violence, right? And though distinguishable by this issue of wills, heaven and earth aren't fully separate in the biblical worldview. In fact, they originally fully overlapped in this place called the Garden of Eden, where humans lived in union with each other, with God, and with creation. And guess what? They followed God's will fully. But humanity rejected God's will. As the story goes, heaven and earth, these spaces that overlapped are ripped apart and fixing them, bringing them back together forms the central goal of God in scripture to fully reunite heaven and earth, God's space and human space, bringing all things back under his will forever. It's not God throwing away creation and the earth and taking us somewhere else. It's God promising to eternally save or heal or make whole what he's made in us as human beings living within it, setting right what's gone wrong, restoring everything back to what it was intended to be, which is exactly what Jesus proclaimed when he arrived. He said this movement of the reunion of heaven and earth is beginning with me, that as the Messiah, God was reclaiming his world through Jesus, establishing his will, who knows the prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. Ding, ding, ding. You guys seen the puzzle pieces come into place? The reunion of heaven and earth. That's the story that James has in mind. For him, salvation isn't just going to heaven when we die. It's all of God's work to restore and reclaim and make right his good world, past, present, and future. In the past, Jesus' death and resurrection, God's ultimate victory over evil that we are called to believe, to adopt as our own death and resurrection. In the present, humanity and creation being healed through Jesus, being restored back into the image of God. In the future, our hope as believers that the end of God's story, he will do what he promised he would do. He will make right fully what's gone wrong. The point is, James believed that we're part of this still unfolding story of salvation, of healing, of making things right. So when he says that faith without deeds fails to bring about the good or to save, he's talking about faith's intended purpose as part of that story, not the one that pops into our head. He's talking about faith's good benefit as part of that story, renewed humanity, restored relationships, God advancing his kingdom through a healed people living fully by his will alone. The reunion of heaven and earth, through a people defined by heaven and earth overlapping here and now. Are y'all tracking with me on this? Faith without deeds, belief without action is ineffective in achieving that full attended effect, which James highlights with this illustration. He says, imagine there's a person without clothing or food, someone naked and starving, 
And a Christian sees them and walks by and says, may God's peace be upon you. May God warm you. May God feed you. Sounding religious, but doing nothing to actually help this person. Essentially saying thoughts and prayers, good luck. James asks, what good is that? Is it effective in healing or restoring right relationship? In advancing God's kingdom, righting what's gone wrong? Does it produce, produce faith's intended effect on us, transforming us into people through whom God's will is realized on earth as it is in heaven? Does it do those things? No. What good is it then, James asks, and then answers, none at all. It's stalled in what God designed faith to do. It's inactive, or as James bluntly puts it, it's dead. He continues, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So to further his point, James lays out a hypothetical argument with someone who disagrees with this premise, which is relatable does anyone else here have imaginary arguments with their enemies in the shower each morning? Who feels called out? Guilty. His opponent argues that having either beliefs or actions can produce the full intended effect of faith, the overlap of heaven and earth. But James challenges that premise. He says, visibly, prove your faith without actions. Now, simple question, can you fully prove that you trust something or someone without doing anything? No. Can I prove to you that I trust that a science experiment works without ever actually doing it? No. It's a pretty simple premise. In fact, James says, just believing God exists can't be the full purpose of faith because even demons do that and shudder which is pretty biting sarcasm. Essentially what he's getting at is even evil acknowledges that God is real by being afraid of his power, by opposing his power. At least it responds to God being real, unlike those who profess belief in God but don't do anything. Harsh, right? But remember the point. He's using exaggeration for effect. He's arguing that belief in Jesus and loving action are both necessary, that they're meant to be intertwined because it's through both working together that faith produces its full attended effect and benefit for us. Verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Or fun fact, faith without works does not work. That's where a series title comes from. You're welcome, I digress. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness or right relationship. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, it was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did, she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. So James says, you want proof? And like a good first century Jewish person, he says, read your scriptures. Go back to the Old Testament. He cites two Old Testament stories. First, the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. 
which deserves way more commentary than I could give it today, but briefly. In James's mind, this story has three crucial ingredients, and once again, this word, an effect. First, James promises to give Abraham offspring, and Abraham believes that God will provide what he promised. First ingredient, belief. Then Abraham is approached by three strangers who end up being angels in the story, but Abraham doesn't know that, and without knowing that, he provides for their needs, after which God restates his promise to provide Abraham with a son, and Isaac is born. Second ingredient, action. What does Abraham do? He acts on the belief of who this God is. This God is a provider, so I will in turn provide for others. Part three, fast forward to Genesis 22. Abraham's trust in God is tested. He is asked to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, which is the part of the story that deserves way more commentary, just FYI. And that really deserves more time. But for today, here's the important part. Isaac asks along the way, where is the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham responds simply, God himself will provide one. And God does. He provides a ram. Isaac is fine, y'all. If you're nervous, it's okay. God reaffirms his promise to bless Abraham and then through him and his offspring, the whole world. Third ingredient, Abraham's belief combined with trusting action to create a total trust that God is who he says he is, that he will provide. James thinks this is everything. He says Abraham's belief co-worked with his actions to bring his faith to completion, to its fullest form, a full life trust of God that Abraham uses to navigate his world. And what is the intended effect that is produced by Abraham having all three ingredients in his life? He becomes the father of Israel, the foundational family of God's redemptive work, the family through whom Jesus arrives to us. Proof number two, Rahab. And where Abraham is an obvious example as the father of Israel, Rahab is not. In Joshua, Rahab is a Canaanite, which was an enemy of Israel, and a prostitute, a disreputable character in most of our minds probably. But despite her background, what you see in the story is that she hears about the God of Israel. She believes in the God of Israel, and then she responds by doing what God does. She provides for Israelites in need action, and then trusts that God will in turn provide for her, which he does. And what's the effect? Who knows the role that Rahab plays in the biblical story? Anybody? Bible trivia. She is in the family line of Jesus when we read the New Testament genealogies. A key figure through whom God works to bring about the climax of his redemptive story. Shouldn't have been so judgmental of Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. In both of these examples, James sees a pattern. This is the point. This pattern that confirms his argument. Belief and action produces faith which leads us to take part in God's redemptive purposes for our world. In James's mind, this is the full intended effect, the purpose of faith, becoming part of God's unfolding story of renewal. 
but we need the full design to get it. James reminds us to close, verse 26, as the body without the spirit or without breath is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. A body can't be animated without breath, can it? In James' mind, in the same way, faith can't be animated without loving actions for our neighbors. As David Nystrom, an evangelical scholar, summarized, just as flesh without spirit indicates dead flesh, so faith that does not impel us to good deeds is no living faith at all. When the spirit and wisdom of God are ours, our hearts are changed, and so then our desires and our actions in the world. For James, faith has a purpose, y'all, to heal us back into the kinds of human beings that God intended in the first place, people who trust and live fully according to his will on earth as it is in heaven, people who rediscover the reunion of heaven and earth through Jesus and then become conduits of the reunion of heaven and earth themselves in God's world. That's a faith that works, according to James. And all week, despite the theology behind this, it was chemistry that kept coming to my mind. Again, if I tell you that I believe that combining steel wool, a battery, and an aluminum pan is going to create fire or a reaction, how can I prove that to be true? Only by putting my belief in that equation into action to prove that I have the right equation, I have the ingredients, I have the right combination. It's the only way to prove that the belief is true, that it's reliable, that it works, both to you all and honestly to myself. What do you all think? Do you think it works? Yes. Okay. Let's find out. Magic. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> this is James's argument. It's simple, but y'all, he's a good teacher. He's been saying to us over the course of this first part of his letter, this is who God is. This is what Christ's story is about. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then he's shown us how to act. The last three weeks, we've looked at how James urges us to apply Jesus' teachings to our trials, to our temptations, to our prejudices, to how we care for the poor. And now he's just telling us the simple truth of learning. Go replicate it yourselves. Take your belief. Combine actions. Let it co-work to produce this faith, this life of trust, and then go into God's world applying it. James says this will have the good intended effect of faith. Transformation and being caught up in God's redemptive story and work, easing suffering, giving mercy, seeking justice, acting in love, building his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Does anyone want to do that? I do, but there's the bad news. You have to act. <laughs> like it's not as simple as just believing it, according to James. If you want to be a part of the reunion in heaven and earth, you have to act. You got to get off your butt. I found that when discipleship stalls out, when we're doing the Christianity thing but not experiencing the life change and the good news, there's usually one of two reasons. Sometimes 
It's simply because the person does not know the equations or the ingredients. They're a new believer. They don't know the biblical story. They don't know spiritual disciplines. They haven't heard Jesus' teachings, and they just need a guide. I love working with those people. And that's why discipleship requires community. We need others to learn God's equations and his ingredients when it comes to spirituality. We need people to model it for us. That's why we do this whole Christianity thing together. And y'all, E3 is here to help as a community. If you don't know the story, if you don't know the disciplines, if you just need help learning how to walk and to follow Jesus, I'm here to help personally if that's who you are. But more often, the fact is that we know the equation, we know the ingredients, we just don't really believe or trust that it works. And thus, we don't put it into action. We don't do what we need to do to get the effect. We want the life-changing faith without the deeds, without changing our daily behavior. Whether that's fear or it's apathy or it's pride or y'all, if you're like me, it's just cutting corners. We want to become more generous, but not change our budget to give, not change what we do with our money. We want to become more forgiving, but not actually turn the other cheek when it matters in your office or in your marriage or in your relationships. We want to become more just, but not give up our weekends to serve. We want to become more humble, but not if we have to admit that I was wrong or the worst, I don't know. We want to become more peaceful, but Lord, I have fought so many people of this, not if it means waking up an hour earlier to meditate and pray. We want the naked and hungry to be cared for, just not by us, Lord. Can I get an amen? We believe in Jesus, but our faith ends up not working for us and others. And it's not because you're a bad person. It's because the equation you're using is just missing the ingredients. And we're willing, y'all, to say yes to belief and action. This is the good news of James He promises that it will have the spark. He promises that faith will do what God designed it to do, that this God provides, that he will create the reaction, the full effect, the reunion of heaven and earth in and through us if we just do what we're supposed to do. Jesus came to us. He showed us. He taught us. He said, go be like me into the world. And y'all, I think he actually meant it. But this God is going to help us get there if we just be willing to trust him, his ways, that he's right, and then go do that in our world. We just need to be willing to say yes to a faith that actually works. Amen? Amen. So as we head into this last song, as we, as the song says, come to the altar to lay ourselves down, Where do you need to lay down that pride, that apathy, that fear, and just adopt a simple life change and just combine it with your belief and watch God do the rest? Because that's the promise. That's the good news. That's the overlap of heaven and earth.